Welcome to the Danish National Biobank podcast. We've been gone for quite a while due to the coronavirus pandemic. We return now, however, to give you this special series. With speaks from our co-hosted symposium, Scaling Omics Approaches to Population Size. This is Matthias Mann from Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry and Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Protein Research. On the topic, proteomics on a population-based scale. Okay, so then I'll start. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. And I really would have hoped to come to the uh, to the meeting and to the speakers' dinners yesterday night, but um, uh, but that's the virus. Um, yeah, so I'm very happy to tell you about um, uh, Biobank from our point of view, and that point of view is like um, we uh, absolutely needed for our research. Um, and um, um, and uh, I hopefully can show you some very cool ways that we can use both body fluids um, and um, and also tissue. So this is actually cutting edge research that I'm showing you today. And um, and the one uh, story is um, just on BioArchive, and the other story is not published yet. Um, but um, I hope it. Um, can actually change the way we can use uh, tissues in uh, from the biobanks, or how you, how we can use them uh, to greater advantage. So uh, this work is uh, both from my group in uh, Munich, uh, where I'm now, and also from the group in Copenhagen at the uh, NNF Center uh, for Protein Research. So here are the two places um, where our groups are, and. Um, um, yeah, here in Munich we are um, at the Max Planck Institute, and, and in Munich we are at, at soon faculty. So let's see if I can get a pointer here. Yeah. Um, so um, what we do is proteomics. So we're looking at the proteins in these samples, and um, just to refresh you, uh, we would start with some uh, sample of um, um, of some anything basically that, that contains. Uh, proteins such as here cancer tissue and then we need to um, extract the proteins from that and that we can do in a streamlined fashion in robots these days so that's um, symbolized by the this pipette tip here where we would actually do all the sample preparation and then we uh, have here um, two platforms that we're using so either this um, more well-known um, a thermo orbitrap platform for doing the proteomics, and that, and and then this year one uh, time of flight, I'll, I'll mention it, and that gives us a very very high sensitivity that we need for a single cell work that I'm going to talk to you about. And then once we have that data, then it's the same as in all, all other um, uh, areas of bioinformat uh, of um, omics uh, that you need a lot of bioinformatics to actually make sense of this data. So, and then over the years, we have used this a lot in cell biology to ask basic questions in cell biology, cell signaling, and so on. Uh, but the last five years, we're really switching a lot to clinical applications um, and um, 
we hope the next phase will indeed be uh, to roll it out on a population scale if we get a chance. So, uh, so lots of technology development, which I will not talk so much about. And here it's more conceptually. Um, so once we have this technology, what can we actually do with this proteomics technology? And if we look at the cross-section of a cell, uh, we can uh, look not only at the expression levels of the, uh, of the proteins, but in principle, we can look at where are the proteins, like where in the cell are they, uh, or in the extracellular matrix that's indicated here. And we can also study dynamic processes as we do something to the cells or as we get tissue from, let's say, patients over different times of their disease course. Uh, and then here we can also look at post-translation modifications that's indicated here. So whether the, the proteins are in an active state or, um, um, or not in an active state, for instance. So um, just to uh, show you, illustrate what, um, how, how far this technology has come. So uh, this has nothing to do with biobanks, uh, but this is a large-scale study we published um, half a year ago in Nature. And what we did here is that we took the proteomes of 100 different species, and um, we, we measured them. And then, um, so these were all species where the genome was already sequenced. Uh, but what we could then add was what, was, uh, what does the genome actually get translated to? Um, so we could say what, uh, you know, what are the most abundant proteins uh, for, uh, for all these 100 different species from archaea, bacteria, uh, to, um, to mammals. So, uh, and, and that was done with a fancy workflow that's illustrated here. And uh, it actually also doubled the number of experimentally verified proteins in one go. So that's just by illustrating how far the technology has come. And uh, now I start with the first story and that's um, uh, body fluids with specifically uh, the plasma. So it's been uh, clear for a long time uh, that it would be a good area for proteomics to get into. Um, um, to study the proteins in the plasma. Um, so there was already a false dawn, I would say, 20 years ago, when people said they could um, diagnose ovarian cancer, uh, for instance, from, um, from blood. But um, then more recently, you may have heard this story of a drop of blood with um, um, a company in, in San Francisco, but that turned out to be fraudulent. Um, so, uh, so the um, idea that we will use, that we want to use um, uh, proteomics or some, some sort of measuring of the proteins in the plasma. Uh, that's already been apparent uh, for, for decades, uh, but that we can actually do it with mass spec based proteomics, that's very recent. And, and why is that? As you can see this here on, on the upper left, uh, that's because of this so-called dynamic range problem. So we need to measure, uh, so we have uh, proteins like albumin in our blood uh, that transports things in the blood and other transport proteins here. Uh, and then on the other extreme, we have uh, signaling proteins like cytokines. And between them, there's, um, uh, there's over 10 orders of magnitude in concentration. So that's analytically very difficult. So um, I can liken it to measuring the weight of a jumbo jet by itself or a jumbo jet with an apple put on the wing, right? So it's really, really, um, uh, you need very, very uh, advanced um, technology for that, uh, and that's why it's taking so long. So then here's a bioinformatic analysis here. So um, what are these proteins actually doing? So for instance, we have acute phase proteins in the top range of the abundance, and then we have the cytokines that are already mentioned here. And in the middle, we have a lot of tissue leakage proteins. 
So they have uh, many of them have no business to be in the plasma, but they're just being spilled into the plasma. And if an organ like the prostate um, is somehow damaged or the heart, uh, then it will spill the um, uh, specific proteins of that organ into the plasma, and and that's then elevated. And we can say maybe this person has um, uh, a risk for heart disease, or they've had a heart attack, or or they may be on the way to prostate cancer. So, um, so in these days of uh, omics and specifically genomics, you may think it's all done by by genomics nowadays, but that's not the case. So this is from the uh, uh, from the biggest hospital in uh, in Munich here. Uh, we also work together with, and we've tallied that for this review that you can see in molecular systems biology. So of of um, the people that come into the system at all, 77% of them get a lab test. Um, and then out of uh, those uh, millions um, in this one hospital here uh, per year, and the same as at Ries Hospital also, uh, then uh, a plurality of them uh, get tested for uh, proteins. So that's the blue wedge here. And another uh, big wedge is small molecules. Um, so that's metabolomics, and that's also done by mass spectrometry. So if um, if everything uh, you know, if we had developed our technology, then I would argue that all these lab tests should actually be done by um, by mass spectrometry instead of by ELISA as they're done now, uh, because one of the advantages would be that it's much more specific, and the other advantage would be that you could measure everything at once, so you would get not only the level of one reagent, but, um, but of um, hundreds all at once. So that's our goal. So this is this review where we also go into why this hasn't happened uh, before, and you can get this poster, so you can go to this molecular systems biology website. Um, and we have uh, developed, um, uh, with Philip spearheading that on uh, the Munich side, we have developed um, a workflow where we just take a finger prick of blood here, uh, then use robots to, um, to work this up, and then have the mass spectrometer, and then come to this protein pattern in your blood, and that's um, um, so that we had here. Uh, and then we have done a number of studies. We've looked at how does the plasma proteome change on weight loss uh, and bariatric surgery. And um, we have also done this for newborns of two early born children and, and a wide range. But the story that I'm going to talk to you about today is uh, liver disease. And this is done by uh, Lili Neu in, um, in my lab in Copenhagen. Uh, and also done with a, um, a network uh, headed by the next speaker, actually, uh, Tom Hansen, uh, where, where we look at uh, the liver. And um, so a large proportion of, um, of the uh, population uh, has uh, uh, fatty liver. So this here is uh, alcoholic fatty liver, but it can also be um, a fatty liver um, just because of obesity. And this can then uh, go on to steatohepatitis and then to fibrosis and cirrhosis. Uh, and then this is irreversible here. And people actually, and there's very high, very high mortality. So you would like to catch this at earlier stages. Um, and right now, the, um, there are decades old enzyme tests uh, for the plasma uh, or there are ultrasound based um, imaging tests where, uh, where you look at how stiff is the liver. Uh, but this tends to be a little bit late, 
And um, so this is a, a large unmet need. So what we did is we um, looked first in Nafel, so that's Lily here and Philip. Uh, so Lily is soon going to defend her her um, uh, PhD, actually. So here we looked at uh, Danish cohorts, um, like you can see here, and these were relatively small, but we nevertheless found, um, uh, using this technology here, uh, we found uh, potential biomarkers, and then we actually also verified them in uh, mouse models. So, um, um, so that's what we already did, and uh, now it's uh, a large study uh, that um, uh, comes from Odense, and uh, uh, it's it's more than 600 people now, and um, uh, and then we uh, have a fancy workflow here with a lot of quality control uh, robots, and um, and then we we do this by a particular mass spec method that's called data independent uh, acquisition. So we get uh, uh, not so many missing values, uh, and then uh, in this case we used um, Lily needed 26 days of measuring time. And then we do machine learning and um, a lot of data analysis here. So, uh, and uh, the good thing was here that we had actually uh, for a large number of, of people, we had actually also the um, the tissue and uh, uh, and uh, so paired samples from tissue and the blood. And then that could be the first question. So when um, so what is the abundance of uh, potential biomarkers in the liver itself and, and in the um, plasma? So you can see there are two populations. So some are more uh, abundant in the liver itself and some are uh, abundant in both. Uh, and uh, what we're interested in is then if we have potential biomarkers, then would they, um, um, they could be going up just in the tissue or they could be going um, up both in the tissue and uh, and also in the circulation. So again, they would be spilled into the circulation. And what we see here, uh, we have actually both. Um, so, um, and the C-reactive protein, that's sort of the most famous marker for cardiovascular health, um, that actually uh, is, is a very good marker of, uh, of liver disease also, we actually argue a better marker of liver disease perhaps. Uh, so some of these are, are used in the clinic now, and now we can say, are they um, coming more from the liver, potentially also which cell type in the liver? Uh, and, um, or, um, and, and we also have many examples of things that build up in the liver, but they're not shed in the circulation. And what's more <clears throat> is that uh, you can see here in the heat map, so we have uh, patients, um, so this cross-sectional, not the same patients, uh, but we have patients in each of, uh, of four categories of fibrosis. And then we have uh, uh, we have uh, the tissue proteomes here, and then we have uh, the same four stages in the plasma, and we can see examples of proteins uh, that go down in the liver and go down in the plasma <clears throat> across the fibrosis stages. Uh, but then we also have ones that go uh, in parallel, or even we have uh, some that go up first in the liver, and then they, with a delayed um, some delay. Uh, in the fibrotic stage, uh, they come into the plasma. Um, so, um, and uh, this, of course, is very exciting because you can be a little bit more mechanistic about what do these biomarkers actually mean. Uh, and this is um, the one the thing I'm most excited about because um, working with a group in in Odense with Alexander Kau and his team, um, uh, we then uh, took the best 
uh, test that they have, which they also partly develop, um, and uh, and then uh, compared it to the mass spectrometry. So this is a bit uh, complicated, but um, this is this usual uh, receiver operator uh, curve for how well can we actually predict uh, the the disease cause or how does how much does it correlate in the first instance with the fibrotic stage, and it turns out that uh, we actually right now on par or even better than uh, and then the best tests that are out there uh, for the early stages of fibrosis. So we can tell from the protein profile <clears throat> what um, you know uh, um, are they uh, do they have this fibrotic uh, state. Uh, um, or on the road to <clears throat> fibrosis uh, or not. Uh, and um, uh, because you can do this just from a finger prick and the technology is getting rapidly better, um, uh, I think this is very exciting. And we are actually now looking into that we can do this. We need to replicate this in larger cohorts, uh, but we are thinking about can we actually um, uh, roll this out for um, a Danish population at risk. So the cost will not be prohibitive. Um, but of course, it's going to take a number of years because this all needs to be verified and, and there need to be people that want to do this and to pay for it also. So um, this is very exciting. And uh, the good thing is this is generic. So once it's for uh, liver disease, it could be uh, it will be the same test almost uh, because uh, we're just looking for the proteins in the plasma uh, for um, metabolic risk or more generally or maybe heart disease and maybe also late presenting cancers as we uh, incre uh, uh, increase the depth of the technology. So um, this is then our vision. So we would uh, uh, we would do a lot of these uh, studies, which we are doing already, and then we would get a big matrix. So what do these patterns mean? And that's illustrated here. So liver disease or heart disease, or what is your uh, reaction to a drug? Will it even work? And this will be lifestyle, for instance, vegetarian versus um, some Western diet lifestyle and these are quality controls. So that's um, um, one use of um, um, of uh, these studies and, and and biobanks. And then the other one uh, is very new and very hot, I would say, and that's um, uh, can we actually use uh, tissues and go down to the level of individual cells or individual cell types? So as illustrated here, you may have seen this before for uh, deep single cell sequencing, which there's a lot of now, um, but we want to do it with proteomics. Um, so this is the argument here that um, when you do this uh, uh, in bulk and you mix all this, like in uh, uh, like shown here in a blender, then you would get an average of everything. But if you could pick out the individual cell types, you would get, um, you know, this looks more like a banana and this looks more like a pineapple and so on. So we would be better able to assign changes in uh, in the proteome in this case uh, to what cells they are coming from. So this um, um, this project here is set up by Andreas and Marvin in Munich. So that's the technology part that we need to in increase the sensitivity of our mass specs. Um, so uh, what we are doing is either la laser microdissection or what I'm showing you now is uh, fax sorting uh, into uh, 384s. Um, um, wells, uh, and then this, this symbolizes the uh, HPLC part, um, and this symbolizes the uh, mass spectrometer, or is a cartoon of the mass spectrometer. So we work with these both companies. So uh, this HPLC is actually a company uh, that's uh, uh, in Odense, so it's spearheading this. 
Um, so this is the EvoSAP, and um, as I also have to say that I'm an indirect investor in this company in Odense, so uh, that's disclosure of um, conflict, possible conflict of interest. But basically, uh, this is a very robust system, uh, and what's new here is that we push out the liquid at a very, very low rate, and that uh, dramatically increases our sensitivity, and it's still a very, uh, very um, robust system as shown here. So then uh, the, the other part is the mass spectrometer itself. And then we're working uh, 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 very close together with this Bucher company, uh, which is a German and American company. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, we need to increase the signal of this instrument. And it's shown here. Uh, and this is shown here that we indeed um, can do this. So it's five times higher signal. Uh, and then then uh, this is the result already. So when we then fax sort either zero cells or uh, three cells uh, into one well or three, uh, two cells into one well and so on, then we indeed can see, uh, even from one cell, we can see a thousand proteins. So we're quite proud of that. And um, and that gives us now a, a handle on, um, on looking at specific cell types. Uh, so this is the quantification. So you see a, a plot of uh, um, bulk, uh, bulk proteome. Uh, 200 nanogram against bulk proteome, so that has a good correlation. Um, but that's even the case still when we go to eight cells only, and that's even the case very interestingly if we go to one cell. And that, uh, as you may know, if if you're working with uh, um, transcriptomics, that's not the case, not for technology reason, but because the cell doesn't need uh, every um, message uh, for every gene to be present there all the time, so it's inherently noisy from a uh, a, a shotgun noise point of view. So what we've seen here is that uh, single cells actually have a, a stable proteome. Uh, so we've done a lot of experiments now, uh, uh, whereas they don't have a stable um, uh, a stable transcriptome, and that's in the nature of the biology. So now what can we do with this? So we have a history here uh, of looking at, um, at tissues and um, uh, in the context of cancer or metabolic disease or neurodegenerative disease. Uh, and with, there we look at archived patient samples. And um, and you can actually use, by proteomics, you can use FFPE material um, because proteins are quite tough in contrast to RNA. Um, so in this paper here, for instance, in uh, working together with a, a group in Chicago and Slengi, here, uh, we've cut out the tumor area here, microdissection, or we've cut out the stroma surrounding the tumor, and the prof and, and it, um, it turned out that the marker that, that one could do something with was actually in the stroma, which was good news because um, the uh, stroma is genetically stable, whereas the pro um, um, uh, the tumor, of course, evolves uh, um, when you do something to it. So. Um, so that was before, but now the new ideas, uh, and that's spearheaded by Andreas Mund in, and Fabian Koscher in, uh, at, at the CPR in, in Copenhagen. Um, now we want to use uh, the tissue, and then we want to use um, deep learning for both um, segmenting the cells and then also uh, classifying them. So that's our idea. And then we also have something that I don't have talk, time to talk about. Uh, but that's a bioinformatic tool called the clinical knowledge graph. We put all this in and uh, and um, uh, put it together with all the knowledge that's out there in terms of publications and databases. So this is a large team effort that also involves um, 
um, the group of Peter Horvath here for artificial intelligence, and also a group from um, from Leica uh, because we had to or they had to adopt uh, uh, um, the uh, uh, microscopes that we uh, that we use. So this is um, um, a typical uh, slice from a tissue. This is salivary gland, uh, so it looks quite beautiful. And now the first task is to use uh, deep learning, so artificial intelligence, uh, to segment the cells to just that the computer can see where they are. So that's here from the Hovas group. Uh, and now uh, it's, it's segmented the cells based on uh, markers for the plasma membrane and um, so on the morphology. Uh, and this is uh, an example for uh, fallopian tube from uh, ovarian cancer. So it's drawing now the outlines uh, of the cells. And then um, it's also going to use machine learning uh, to actually cluster the cells. Uh, either we teach it, you know, what are the different cell types here? Or, um, or we ask it, please give us n number, uh, for example, eight different classes of cells uh, on the basis of morphology or antibody staining or whatever you want. So this has happened here in the example of the salivary gland. So this is morphological classifiers, and then it, it gives them pseudo colors or it gives them colors based on, uh, uh, we asked it for to find five different classes here. So we don't actually know what these classes are. And then, uh, uh, and then this is the, uh, <clears throat> the thing that happens next. So, so first, uh, yeah, we also need to find landmarks in the actual uh, uh, slides so that we can transfer it from one imaging to another imaging and also to the microscope that's actually going to cut them out with a laser. So that's illustrated here. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and this illustrates here uh, how um, uh, how uh, the software then finds different classes uh, of cells and groups them together. Uh, so it's actually very smart about it and uh, it uses the latest tricks in deep learning so you don't need like millions of examples. So this is an example here uh, how, how that would actually look like. So laser microdissection. So it's first drawn the outlines that you can see in yellow here and that would, then would actually with the laser uh, cut it out and, and it can be quite fast, so a few seconds per cell. So it could actually do 30,000 cells per day. And then, um, and this is, in, uh, this is something that's called um, biological fractionation. So if we now not analyze the whole, um, uh, the whole um, tissue, um, but uh, each class of, uh, of cells separately, then we will get the most abundant proteins uh, or the characteristic proteins of that cell type. Uh, we get them to show up uh, in high abundance, right? So here we have the protein abundance rank here uh, shown. Um, uh, so this will be most abundant proteins and least abundant proteins, protein, uh, and then uh, a characteristic uh, protein for this type of cell would be the most abundant uh, protein once if we cut out only that cell type and also these are other characteristic proteins for that cell type. Um, and this is another example of exactly the same. So here we're looking at melanoma. So again, the AI has classified uh, cells here and, and marked them in color. Uh, and, um, yeah, and then we get the specific proteins uh, um, that, are, that have been annotated in the literature to be specific to melanoma. Uh, and they are then cut out. And we can go one step further. Nothing um, um, tells us to stop at uh, just... Uh, the cells, we can also cut out the nuclei 
uh, and then we will get um, uh, processes, uh, biological processes, when we then analyze it, uh, um, that are characteristic for the nuclei or the cell um, uh, or, or the cytosol. So that's illustrated again here. Um, and uh, classifies them into six classes in this case. Uh, and then the uh, proteome will also cluster into the same six classes. And we can see what proteins are characteristic of that class. So it turns out this is in cell culture. This is actually the proliferative status of the cell. And we can now, um, uh, so in closing here, that uh, we, we can put this together with all kinds of um, imaging developments now. So for instance, this is showing that we can uh, extract these features in three dimensions. Um, and, and then we need to cut, cut them out. So classify them in three dimensions. Um, and um, even if we see any kind of interesting thing from um, uh, your biobank samples here, for instance, what is this here? What are the cells trying to do here? Uh, you know, when, when they have this contact, this can also be cut out and, uh, and analyzed by proteomics in the future. So, uh, and then we hope that this will be a decision support. Uh, yeah, that's the last slide. Uh, uh, decision support for uh, clinicians. Okay, so um, I thank you for your attention and um, I hope you found this interesting. And um, 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 yeah, so, um, and we hope to be in contact with uh, you know, biobanks and measure them through eventually. So thanks for your attention.